Welcome everyone to our final quarterly call of the calendar year. In many ways, it has been a more difficult one to invest in than last year, especially after the initial pandemic lockdowns. Essentially, almost anything you purchased after April of 2020 most likely went up as the reflationary trade spread throughout the world on the heels of massive monetary stimulus and historically high fiscal support. So far this year, and likely for the foreseeable future, a more tactical approach is warranted. This is one that considers valuations, the cost of money, and geopolitical and social considerations that were heretofore forgotten. Public policy will be addressed later as looming political shifts in the U.S. will have real-world market implications. This will be the subject of our big theme today, the coming regulatory onslaught on U.S. mega-cap companies. But first, let us begin as we usually do with the near-term global macroeconomic landscape and our tactical asset allocation shifts for Q4. As you know, the first question we always ask ourselves is, where are we in the economic cycle? The answer to this question is important because the business cycle drives the equity market over an annual horizon. Well, as this first graphic shows, our proprietary Insignio Forefront Recessionary Indicator, which predicts the probability of a contraction in U.S. economic activity over the next two quarters, is practically zero. In other words, there is almost no chance of a U.S. recession in the next six months. While some subcomponents of the indicator, like the change in ISM new orders, consumer confidence, and building permits are signaling higher risk, none of them have broken the 40% threshold required to signal heightened risk individually. Collectively, the message is even stronger. Two-quarter forward period recession probabilities stand at 0%. Certainly, U.S. growth has passed its peak back in Q2, but real GDP growth will likely end the year at 6% to 6.5%, about three times the trend rate of growth despite the Delta wave-induced slowdown. But what about the picture outside of the U.S.? Here the numbers tell basically the same narrative, slowing from elevated levels but remaining well above trend growth rates. Our global real GDP estimates currently stand at 5 to 5.5%, again, well above trend. In fact, the only major economic block that will be a disappointment from a growth perspective will be China, which has been hampered by a plethora of macro headwinds, most of them self-induced, as the country pushes forward with its deleveraging and now common prosperity campaign. As you will probably recall from last quarter's call, China was the only region in the world where we were expecting growth to come in below market expectations. It was one of the reasons why we cut our emerging market equity exposure then. At this point, however, we think that growth projections in China have gone too far in the opposite direction, and you will soon see how we plan to take advantage of that tactically. For us, Chinese real GDP growth should be within the range of 75 to 8% roughly 50 basis points lower than our previous estimates due to mostly self-inflicted wounds. Overall though, we remain sanguine on global growth and continue to argue that we are likely in the middle to late stages of a business cycle expansion begun in 2009 after the global financial crisis that was momentarily interrupted by the global pandemic last year. Despite the Delta variant hiccup this summer, still easy monetary policy, pent-up excess savings, and strong revenue growth should continue to prop up economic activity and financial markets, 
even if some are showing signs of froth from heightened expectations. However, fiscal policy will turn from a tailwind in 2021 into a headwind throughout 2022 if no new fiscal initiatives are passed in the US or Europe, which is not our base case, but a risk we are monitoring. Right now, we are penciling in about a 50% fiscal drag globally. The downside risks to review are as follows. First, potentially hawkish central banks tightening policy too far and or too quickly. Second, a Chinese policy mistake during the Evergrande restructuring, like failing to support the economy enough during this important phase. Third, the U.S. debt ceiling debate becoming politically weaponized as it was back in 2011. We also could see retail investors stepping away from the market. And finally, autumnal de delta waves leading to further weakness in growth. For rates, remember that the pace is often more important than the direction. This is what occurred back in March, and we saw a glimmer of this again last week. S&P 500 returns have historically been weak when rates rise by one to two standard deviations in one month and are outright negative when the moves are greater than two standard deviations. We continue to expect price pressures to be transitory if fiscal stimulus remains modest and therefore will not prompt the Fed to respond to the current bout of inflation. We are already seeing signs that inflation pressures are abating, but they may be staying more elevated due to rising expectations, higher energy costs, persistent supply disruptions, and shifting power dynamics for labor versus capital as worker demand has never been higher. If the full $3.5 trillion fiscal bill makes it into law, again, which is not what we expect, then we will get more worried. Chairman Powell has clearly stated that tapering is separate from a, from a hiking cycle, and we do not see the Fed increasing rates until late 2022 at the earliest. This next chart is one of my favorites. It succinctly explains why we remain bullish and continue to favor equities and other risk on assets over sovereign bonds and other risk off assets over the coming year. Bear markets and recessions tend to overlap. Over the last half century, there has only been one instance of a bear market, a 20% or more con contraction in asset prices outside of a recession, the 1987 stock market crash. And if you follow my logic that the COVID pandemic was not a technical recession, which it was not if you use the NBER definition of a two-quarter contraction, then there really have only been two instances, 1987 and 2020. In both cases, however, you would have been better off if you did nothing to change the overall risk balance of your portfolios once the drawdown occurred, as it was so short-lived. Because of this, we adhere to the foundational principle that unless a recession is imminent, meaning six months away according to our indicator, then our overall allocation should be bullish, or at least neutral. A corollary to this, of course, is that in the lead up to a recession, and during one, our asset allocation should be bearish, or at most neutral. Notwithstanding the above, it is likely that the best gains of the year are past us, and that investors should expect single-digit returns on developed market equity bourses for the remainder of the year. Last quarter, I decided not to adjust my year-end price target on the S&P 500 of 4,300 to 4,400 until we had further clarity on the U.S. fiscal picture with major legislation pending in Congress. Instead, we urged investors to remember, surface, and assess the mid-year landscape. Well, as you can see in this chart, 
the pause was warranted, and we are basically right where we began last quarter. Today, although the clarity on U.S. fiscal policy is no clearer, I do have more visibility on earnings growth and the path of rates. Because of this, I would target a year-end level between 4,600 and 4,700 on the S&P 500. On the U.S. 10-year bond, we have reduced our year-end target range from 1.9 to 2% down to a range of 1.7 to 1.8%. But beneath the surface, we are making some tactical shifts to the portfolios. Our global asset allocation views can be summarized as follows. First, we recommend maintaining an overweight exposure to risk assets while moderately dialing back U.S. equity exposure by positioning more defensively. Our relatively balanced bar style barbell approach is evenly divided between value and growth. We want to ha have exposure in sectors that benefit from higher rates as bond yields likely bottom last month, value, as well as those that outperform amid an endemic COVID environment, growth, but X mega cap US tech stocks. Next, we want to maintain above average exposure to develop markets outside of the US, such as Japan and Europe, due to their structural tilts to cyclicals and value. Then we want to increase exposure to emerging market equities, given their recent underperformance and anticipated fiscal boost from Japan and policy easing in China. We want to adjust for the common prosperity regulatory shift in China by favoring A shares, smaller companies, and avoiding to the extent possible big tech and common prosperity targets like education, consumer internet, and housing. Then we want to slightly increase exposure to Chinese sovereign and high-grade corporate credit as this space has performed as we posited last quarter as an effective risk-off asset class after our Q3 entry into the space. These also would benefit from further policy easing from the mainland. Global yields should continue to drift higher and a retest of the March U.S. Treasury highs is likely as massive Treasury issuance commences just as Fed tapering begins. So therefore, keep duration short in those portfolios. And finally, we want to maintain our preferred inflation hedge through commodities favoring energy and the base metals. As you can see, there are only three important differences from last quarter's asset allocation to this one. These are, first, a more defensive positioning in U.S. equities, then moving further up in the capital structure in China, and finally increasing our overall emerging market equity exposure. Let us address these in turn. First, the increased defensive positioning of our U.S. equity sleeves makes sense when we are so close to our year-end target on the S&P 500. Earnings growth estimates are elevated, and U.S. bourses have not seen a significant equity co correction since the new bull market began in April of last year. This could be done through various strategies that lower the beta versus the broader market, such as covered calls. In our IMAPs, for example, we decided to take part of our broad S&P 500 index allocation and rebalance it into a Schiller Cape strategy. We did not become more defensive because investor sentiment has already turned quite bearish. As of September 15th, the American Association of Individual Investors latest sentiment survey revealed that bullish sentiment collapsed as bears exceeded bulls by almost 17 points, one of the largest historical margins ever recorded. Therefore, 
our contrarian sensibilities inform us that any drawdown in U.S. equities would likely prove quite fleeting, will be quickly reversed, or might not even occur given stretched negative sentiment. Second, we purchase more Chinese sovereign and high-grade corporate credit. After initiating this position in Q3, the position has performed as expected. It is a diversified, carry-rich, uncorrelated safe haven asset. In fact, since July 1st, our Chinese bond holdings have outperformed both our treasury holdings and our investment-grade corporate bonds. As of September 27th, this leave returned 1.3% versus 1% for investment-grade corporate bonds and no change for treasuries and the renminbi has strengthened during this crisis. This outperformance is remarkable given that global markets have been roiled by various risk sell-off episodes emanating out of China. These included draconian lockdowns, an economic slowdown, punitive regulatory and industry-killing reforms, and the default of the world's most heavily indebted property developer, Evergrande. If these assets acted as a safe haven during this period, then it is fair to say that they indeed are a safe haven asset. This next chart shows the behavior of Chinese investment-grade credit spreads versus their high-yield counterparts. It shows that during the Evergrande default, when high-yield spreads materially widened, investment-grade spreads instead narrowed as investors sought refuge. As we have stated previously, a rational investor may correctly surmise that the only way to play the China growth story is through investments higher up in the capital structure where the regulatory cycle is unlikelier to reap. Finally, and perhaps most controversially, we marginally increased our emerging market equity allocation as a tactical trade for the final quarter of the year. If you recall, we reduced our emerging market equity exposure for Q3 in anticipation of Fed tapering signaling, the declining Chinese credit impulse, increasing regulatory uncertainty, and lower vaccination rates vis-a-vis -vis the developed world. That trade worked in our favor, but now it is time to reverse course for at least a quarter. There are several pillars underpinning this investment thesis. For one, emerging market equities have underperformed developed market ones by a wide margin, and there is some scope for mean reversion. The last two instances where emerging equities have underperformed developed markets by 20% in the second half of 2015 and in the middle of 2018 were both followed by a period where emerging markets subsequently outperformed by 10% to 15%. Next, we anticipate that the inoculation rate in the emerging markets will ramp up considerably in the near term. Over the last three months, the vaccination rate in Asia, for example, has jumped from 21% to 63% of the adult population. At this pace, an overwhelming majority of APAC nations will have more than 80% of their adult population vaccinated by the end of the year. This will remove a major growth drag on these economies. Growth momentum in Asia slowed in the last two quarters due to continued stringent measures to contain COVID outbreaks in several large economies 
a zero-tolerance COVID policy. China, for example, famously imposed a lockdown in a city after only one confirmed case. They did this because so few people were vaccinated. APEC consumption growth specifically is the only GDP component that remains below its pre-pandemic path. But if our projections prove true, however, APEC should modify their COVID management strategies from zero tolerance to the Western-style acceptance of COVID as an endemic problem. If so, we would expect a robust recovery in consumption starting in Q1 of 2022, paralleling the recovery in the West earlier this year. An investor, though, would want a position for that recovery in Q4 when it has yet to be priced in. We are also seeing signs that inflationary pressures in the emerging world are starting to ease, specifically in food prices, which traditionally have been a strong driver of inflation in the region. There are also signs that the PBOC is embarking on a stimulative path. The reserve requirement ratio was cut in July. New bank loans have risen by 13% in August. Fiscal spending is up with increased local government bond issuance and an additional 300 billion renminbi in credit support was provided to small and medium-sized businesses in September. Lately, the central bank has provided the market liquidity injections for several consecutive days. The trend is clear. Lastly, emerging market equity valuations are very cheap. They trade at a Schiller PE ratio of only 14.7 times, compared to 22.2 times for Europe, 24.1 times for Japan, and 36.8 times for the US. We have not seen this discount since the late 1990s. If you think that they are cheaper because they have weaker earnings, then consider this. Since mid-2019, US earnings have outpaced emerging market earnings by only 6%, but emerging market equities have underperformed US equities by 29% during this same period. The biggest risk to our view here is that Chinese policymakers make a mistake, either by not curtailing secondary and tertiary effects of the Evergrande default, resulting in a broader slowdown, and or that they do not stimulate the economy as much as we expect. The latter is more probable than the former, as there was a previous bias to promulgate only common prosperity themes and deleverage the economy. Overall though, we like the trade over a tactical horizon in Q4. Now let us turn our attention to US mega cap names, those ubiquitously owned stocks that we think have very poor long-term prospects. In the biblical book of Exodus, God delivers manna to the Israelites during their 40-year journey from Egypt until they reached Canaan. It was the sustenance they needed for their arduous journey of purification before they could enter the promised land. For mega cap tech companies, names like Amazon, Facebook, and Google the pandemic was mana from heaven. Forced to remain inside their homes, consumers were forced online as real-world activity ground to a halt. Moreover, these people were flushed with cash thanks to historic fiscal stimulus. This resulted in unprecedented revenue and as rates moved to new lows, soaring PE multiples for these growth stocks. As we return to normal, all these tailwinds will turn to headwinds. Consumers will spend less on goods and more on services, and higher rates will greatly impact their discounted future cash flows, thus compressing multiples. Positioning is still very crowded, 
Who does not own Amazon stock? So who is left to buy? Unwinding here could also be painful. But these are all relatively short to medium term considerations. The biggest worry, as always, should be the long term trend. The most compelling argument for exiting these US mega cap names is that they will be subjected to an onerous regulatory onslaught over the next several years. What does this long term risk look like? First, they are likely to come under intense scrutiny for monopolistic corporate practices. So far, this has been hard to prove because these companies tend to drive prices down rather than up. After all, they are not setting prices above marginal costs as monopolies usually do, and many give away their services for free. But regulators will not be focusing so much on pricing policies here. Instead, they will be more attuned to how they use data, especially user data in the case of Facebook and Google. Remember, data is the new currency of the realm. And no government, not the US, not China, will allow private companies to dominate this space. Second, and perhaps most importantly, US public opinion has turned harshly against them. As this table shows, according to a recent Gallup poll, 55% of Americans have a negative overall view of technology companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google. This is up from only 33% two years ago. That is a two-thirds increase in just 17 months. Importantly for investors, 57% believe that the government should increase regulation of these tech companies from 48% in 2019. The social media companies, like for example Facebook, Snap, and Twitter, have especially drawn the high and ire of the public. This table from a Pew Research Center survey from July 2020 shows that 64% of American adults believe that social media has a mostly negative effect on the country, while only 10% think it has a mostly positive effect. That is more than 6 to 1. The dislike is particularly acute among Republicans, who believe that Facebook and Twitter suppress conservative viewpoints and speech. So why has the American public turned so harshly against mega cap tech, generally, and social media companies in particular? Well, there is growing evidence that social media use is highly detrimental to the mental health of young persons. A study published in the Journal of Adolescence in July of 2021, titled Worldwide Increases in Adolescent Loneliness, concluded that the pervasive use of social media lead to increased feelings of loneliness and isolation in young people. Moreover, as this chart shows, the problem is a worldwide one, with sharp increases occurring in the Anglosphere, Europe, Latin America, and East Asia from 2010 to the present. Basically, these are all the regions of the planet where social media use is widespread. But the problem goes beyond just feelings of loneliness and isolation. In fact, it seems to now be morphing into significant mental health problems, particularly in young girls, and it is cutting across genders, age groups, and racial and ethnic groups. As this chart shows, in 2009, just over 10% of girls from the ages of 12 to 17 
reported a major depressive episode over the previous year. Ten years later, in 2019, when this particular study concluded, 23% of girls in the sample reported such an episode, almost a quarter. This will not go unnoticed by regulators and the government. How long before these companies are regulated the same way that tobacco, drugs, and alcohol ones are? In fact, I would argue that in many ways the Chinese government is ahead of the curve and that the same regulatory crackdowns we observed this year on Alibaba, Tencent, and gaming are preludes to U.S. measures on their own companies. Of course, the American answer to mega cap tech's growing ubiquity must come from consensus making and the democratic process, which is a sometimes long and laborious process as opposed to China's authoritarian unilateral phone call from a bureaucrat. But as we have seen, the consensus on greater regulation is already there. Now we must wait for the democratic process to catch up. In our opinion, it is only a matter of time before it manifests itself in concrete public policy and enhanced regulatory scrutiny. With towering valuations among the U.S. mega caps, for example, Ford PE multiples of these companies are still north of 80 times, while the S&P 500 is only 22 times. These will be hard pressed to justify these multiples. In fact, they would have to grow earnings approximately 30% per year over the next five years to simply meet analysts' heightened expectations. Remember, every dec decade has its own bubble. Unequivocally, the 2010s belong to mega cap tech. My bet, though, is that the 2020s will belong to something else. Therefore, I would use rallies in this group as points of exit. And with that, I conclude my presentation for today. Now on to our investment strategist, Melissa Ochoa Cardenas, who will be giving us an overview of Latin America. Picking up where we left off last quarter, it seems odd to say that not much has changed on some fronts, but at the same time a lot has changed for the region. Our expected path towards economic recovery has materialized in most of the countries, together with some upward revisions in terms of growth forecasts, but there has simultaneously been a dangerous increase in inflation pressures that are tilting central banks to tighten monetary policy. Moreover, the US seems poised to finally announce the beginning of tapering in November, and oil has remained relatively bullish for the last months even if it has registered some blips in its price. The summer months also brought additional volatility from China, and even if more contained, renewed fears from COVID-19. In general terms, and just like the rest of the world, LATAM continued its economic recovery from the pandemic setback amid an improvement in COVID-19 vaccination rates. This trend, together with a visible reopening of the economies, has ramped up consumption across the region, as well as setting the stage for sustained inflationary pressures that seem to be more permanent than previously expected. The latter has also pressured some of the central banks to either be more aggressive with their monetary policy tightening or to preemptively raise rates as is the case in Peru. However, and even if the macroeconomic backdrop could be deemed as benign, the political environment keeps taking central stage, with upcoming elections in the last quarter of the year that will roll until October 2022. Even if some of these pieces start falling to, into place, the puzzle is likely to remain far from complete. Now, let's dive into a more specific country vision of what has happened since we last reconvened. Let me start with Brazil. 
In its latest monetary policy meeting, the COPOM fulfilled the market's expectations and hiked the selling rate 100 basis points to 6.25%, amid sustained inflationary pressures, together with heightened risks coming from the fiscal side that could also add pressure into current and future inflation readings. On another note, the COPOM considered that growth for the second quarter continued to show a positive evolution. Furthermore, their latest press release showed that the COPOM considered continued tightening to be appropriate, further moving policy into restricted territory, while also acknowledging an additional adjustment of the same magnitude for the next meeting. On the fiscal front, the COPOM emphasized on the need of implementing reforms and adjustments that could cement a sustainable recovery of the economy, while recognizing that any changes to the fiscal consolidation process could result in an increase in the structural interest rate. In addition to the latter, COPOM is also aware of the risk that extending fiscal policy responses to the pandemic represents a risk in terms of fiscal deterioration. This is no small matter, considering that time is running out for President Bolsonaro to present any reforms or budget modifications, given that Brazilian law does not permit the creation of new programs in election years. This jeopardizes the continuity of Bolsonaro's Bolsa Familia, as well as the, that of the emergency benefits that were paid during the pandemic that will expire in October. This considering the necessary adjustments of the spending cap that such continuities would comprise, which could endanger the country's fiscal credibility. Furthermore, the 2022 budget is under pressure from the precatorio payments, since their inclusion in the budget would impair the government's ability to increase discretionary spending in 2022 and would force the budget allocated to Bolsa Familia to remain unchanged to comply with the spending cap. It is also worth highlighting that any modifications that could allow for spending to happen outside of the cap would dent the power of Brazil's only fiscal anchor, thus increasing volatility and uncertainty ahead of the October 2022 elections. The backdrop is all but favorable when considering that the political landscape in Brazil is surrounded by noise generated by the ongoing coalition between President Bolsonaro and the members of the Supreme Court, which have dented his approval rating. The political challenges keep building up when we take into consideration that increased political tension makes any sort of cooperation between government branches more difficult, while slowing the pace of progress regarding reform, reform approval and implementation. If the current government were to feel any mounting pressure from the left, maybe led by President, former President Lula, it is highly likely that it will do all it can to increase stimulus, and therefore its popularity amongst the people, even if this only brings additional pressure to an already entangled budget. In Colombia, growth forecasts have been positively revised by analysts, and this thesis seems to be materializing with the increase in consumer confidence and the positive trend seeing in the PMI throughout the year. Moreover, this positive trend in growth was also confirmed by the latest GDP reading, even if it was below the market's expectations. Against this backdrop of increased consumption and a slow return to normalcy, inflation has not remained as tamed as it previously was. The increased inflation pressures that have also dented inflation expectations made Banrip pull the trigger in its latest monetary policy meeting by increasing the monetary policy rate by 25 basis points. Those expectations are also being supported by Banrip's latest survey, in which analysts see inflation ending the year above its target for the first time since 2017. In terms of monetary policy, most analysts expect a more gradual approach, forecasting that the monetary policy rate would experience two additional basis point, 25 basis point hikes for the rest of the year. It is relevant to state that for Colombia, the pace of monetary policy normalization would follow a more gradual path, 
given that the country still displays a negative output gap, even if it's less negative than previously expected. However, and even if this was not the ultimate solution to the challenging fiscal environment that Colombia currently faces, it is worth highlighting that the Congress approved the renewed tax reform after several sessions of discussion and consensus seeking spearheaded by Finance Minister Restrepo. This reform positions Colombia as a trailblazer in terms of implementing tighter fiscal spending, while showing a commitment to tackle social demands. This reform is also intended to preserve the country's fiscal stability. Nevertheless, it is worth noting that most of the measures it includes will only commence in 2023, and it has already been stated that additional and more structural efforts would be needed from the upcoming administration scheduled to take office in 2022. Colombia is about to enter an electoral cycle that could bring additional volatility to the market. Official presidential candidates have not been declared, and uncertainty will linger until we get more clarity on the definitive candidates and subsequently until the results from internal consultations from the parties take place. The last quarter was full of different challenges for Peru. The country found it difficult to navigate a new course upon President Castillo assuming office, and the market might have, may have priced in a worst-case scenario. The negative news began in the form of a rating downgrade by Moody's that came amid a political turmoil that involved the Congress' decision to grant Prime Minister Bejido's cabinet confidence instead of walking the path of a confidence denial. However, uncertainty surrounding policy development and implementation for the government remains high, especially when considering that President Castillo has shown little signs of moderation from his heterodox campaign proposal, even if Minister Franke has tried to appease markets by advocating to reinstate the fiscal rule, while aiming for fiscal consolidation progress. This amid a projected reduction of the fiscal deficit to 1% of GDP in 2025 by Franke that strongly contrasts with announced expenses by President and Castillo that undermined that reduction. Furthermore, and even if the government has announced its intention to use the increase in mining tax collection to account for additional revenue to subsidize these expenses, the amount of revenue that can be collected stemming from this source could be smaller than the cost of the projects, thus risking an increase in fiscal deficits above forecast. Moreover, the macroeconomic picture for Peru is a mixed one. The latest G real GDP measured by the INACE monthly indicator came below expectations being propelled mainly by the sectors that benefit from the economic reopening. Even if this indicator showed that the economy has not lost momentum and most analysts have revised their growth expectations to the upside, business confidence has taken a hit from the previously mentioned political uncertainty, which does not bode well for sustained growth and economic development going forward. In addition to waning business confidence, Peru is also facing unexpected inflationary pressures after three upside inflation surprises that have caused the BCRP to surprisingly pull the trigger in the implementation out of a more contractionary monetary policy. Nonetheless, the BCRP has emphasized that the previous rate hikes do not imply the beginning of a hiking cycle and that monetary policy is still expansionary. Still, consensus views point towards additional rate increases that could come and should be targeted towards controlling inflation, while trying to keep inflation expectations anchored amid a more data-dependent tone from the central bank. For Chile, the economic recovery seems to be well underway, propelled by strong domestic consumption on the back of still-present fiscal stimulus. That has come together with inflation increases and tighter monetary policy from the central bank. This tighter monetary policy came into effect when the central bank, in a surprising move, hiked 75 basis points in its latest monetary policy meeting, while trying to control higher-than-expected consumption and inflation prints. 
It is also relevant to highlight that the comedy displayed a more hawkish tone, specifically when assessing the current overheating of the economy, together with the visible deterioration of the inflation outlook, as well as the balance of risks for that variable. Furthermore, the latest minutes from the central bank showed that the comedy believes that there is need for faster normalization of monetary policy. Economic recovery seems to be well underway, with the output gap already closed, which contrasts with a deterioration from the external accounts, despite positive commodity prices that usually bode well for Chilean exports. The buoyancy of growth was visible in the, late, in the last GDP print, on the back of economic activity that proved more resilient to restrictions imposed during the pandemic, and the news coming from the government that the IFE cash transfers were going to remain in place for two additional months. This is the latest proof that fiscal stimulus is still present, while also being a support for consumption for the coming months. However, the presence of the remaining stimulus seems to contradict the view expressed by the committee in its latest minutes, where all members admitted that the worst of the pandemic was over, which made maintaining measures to contain its economic and social impact a source of problems and imbalances. As was stated before, this increase in consumption, together with the extended cash transfer program, have set the stage for a relevant increase in both current and inflation expectations. In its latest print, the CPI was mainly propelled by the services group, together with other sectors that particularly benefited from the reopening of the economy. Additionally, core inflation also replicated the upward trend seen in the headline print, thus heading further north of the central bank's target. The observed increase in inflation has also represented a strong transmission to inflation expectations. As previously mentioned, the Chilean government has not hesitated in providing people with additional stimulus that in turn have provided an ongoing support for consumption. Together with lower-than-expected tax collections, this further widened the fiscal deficit, with the government revising its forecast to include a water deficit for this year. Moreover, political risks continues to be one of the main ones for Chile, with the November presidential elections getting closer by the day. According to the latest polls, leftist candidate Gabriel Boric is leading the race, ahead of the center-right representative Sebastián Sichel. This is relevant when considering that the popularity of President Piñera continues to deteriorate, and a shift towards a left-leaning government seems more probable. Nonetheless, it is relevant to highlight that Boric's stance is less radical than what the Communist Party would have proposed, even if his agenda is left-leaning. Meanwhile, the crafting of the new Chilean constitution is still underway, and even if the assembly has held sessions for more than two months, little progress has been made. It is worth highlighting that the deadline for the new constitution to be ready is July the 4th, 2022. If this completion date cannot be reached, then it could be a further increased factor for an already highly uncertain political environment. In our previous quarterly call, Mexico seemed to be the safest bet across LATAM. Nowadays, inflationary pressures in Mexico seem to be confirmed by the bi-weekly inflation print for the first half of September, which recorded upward surprises both in its headline and core reading. It is worth remembering that for August, inflation was 259 basis points above Banxico's inflation target. Furthermore, core inflation accelerated significantly from last year's closings levels, thus confirming that inflation pressures are not that transitory as was previously believed. This change in inflation has had its effects on Banxico's stance and decisions, with the central bank accumulating 75 basis points in rate, in rate hikes year-to-date. Nevertheless, the central bank may have to act more carefully in terms of implementing a more contractive monetary policy, while considering that activity prints seem to be losing steam. Nonetheless, 
after its latest monetary policy meeting, in which Banxico decided to increase 25 basis points, it is worth highlighting its worries regarding how the observed increase in inflation could endanger future inflation expectations, thus making a further tightening of the monetary policy a necessity. Turning to the political front, President AMLO is entering the second half of his tenure after having lost his qualified majority in the lower house, which leaves the government party in a weak position to fulfill negotiations that would allow López to carry on with his suggested constitutional reforms. Furthermore, it is worth remembering that the 2022 budget was presented a couple of weeks ago, in which the government is proposing to run a primary deficit close to 0.3% of GDP, a first when seeing previous year's trend of surpluses recording in the period between 2017 and 2020. This piece of news came with optimistic forecasts from the government in terms of future growth that seemed to depend on higher tax collection, securing a reduction of the profit-sharing tax rate on Pemex, and leaving the door open for further support measures for the company. This budget is still under discussion in the Congress and should be approved before the October 20 deadline. Even if the allowance of a primary deficit would be a first, the fact that the budget is approved would bring fiscal stability, amid already stated commitments from the government to keep public debt levels around 50% of GDP. In sum, our conclusions for the quarter are as follows. Volatility across most of the region will continue to be the name of the game, especially in those countries approaching elections. It is highly likely that the currencies may already be pricing this increase in uncertainty. In terms of investments, Mexico seems to be an attractive bet, considering that volatility has not been present, or at least not at the same degree as its peers. Fiscal and political stability seem to favor investments in this country, as well as a hiking cycle that seems to be coming to an end. Additionally, and even if structural challenges may lay ahead, the history of strong fundamentals and a more gradual approach to monetary policy than its peers in the region also make us consider Colombia as an attractive investment opportunity for the quarter. Political and fiscal risks continue to be the biggest worry across LATAM, especially when taking into account the high projected fiscal deficits for most of the countries, as can be seen in the following graph. Focusing more on the political front, we continue to consider that the best way to play LATAM is to have reduced exposure to both Peru and Brazil, given their current uncertainty in terms of government agenda execution. Furthermore, the fact that the government may not be able to carry out most of its proposals in both countries makes us believe that the political risk is too high to execute profitable trade ideas. Despite the buoyant growth in Chile, it is not sufficient for us to prefer that country as an attractive investment opportunity. We need more political clarity to make that call. The future president will need to shed some light on how to reduce existing fiscal stimulus, which has been a double-edged sword for the Chilean backdrop. Argentinian credit could be an attractive play for those investors willing to tolerate high volatility until the, ele the November elections are passed, or at least until more clarity comes in terms of an IMF program before the March amortization. Thank you. In brief, we'll turn to our Q&A session. This presentation is for general information only and does not contain and is not to be taken as containing any securities advice, recommendation, offer, or invitation to subscribe for or purchase or redemption of any securities regarding Insignio. Information provided herein is not an offer to buy or sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment. 